Well, it is a joyful privilege to be here today and to be able to join the elders in shepherding this flock and to open God's word together. We are thrilled at what God has done in bringing us together, bringing us to this place, being able to meet all of you and serve the Lord together. Um, we have been humbled by the warmth and generosity that we've received. I think of Paul when he opens the book of Colossians. He talks about how he's heard of their, their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. Carissa and I have not just heard about it. We've seen it. We've experienced it among all of you as you've embraced us, as you've served us, as you've fed us, as you have done so much. We are so grateful to be here and eager to see what the Lord is going to do in the years ahead as we strive and pray and struggle and work together for the advance of his gospel here in New England and through the world. That is our joy and our hope. So as we turn to God's word, please pray with me this morning. Lord, it is so good to gather together, to open your word, to sing your praises, to reflect upon the truth and beauty of the gospel of Christ. May we do so this morning as we turn to Psalms. And may you give us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, and hearts ready to be transformed by your spirit. That is our prayer this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series through the book of Psalms for this summer. What I've entitled, Walking with God in the Meantime. Uh, the Christian life through the lens of the Psalms. Walking with God in the meantime. There's something transitional and even unstable about life in this fallen world where we live between the promises of God, his sovereign reign, and to establish his justice and the joy and peace and life and deliverance that come with that. So between the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises, we're in this place in between. And it's, it's, a, it's an unstable and transitional place. And so it's not at all uncommon for us to come to those places in our life where what we know and believe to be true about God seems to clash with what we see going on in the world around us, even what we're experiencing. A world where those who reject God seem to have all the money, all of the power, and all of the fun. A, a world where those who claim to be followers of God and enjoy telling you what you should be doing don't seem to really care about doing it themselves. A world where those who truly are faithful are the ones who seem to be suffering, as though God can't even hear their prayers. The book of Psalms is about life in this meantime life in a fallen world, where God truly does reign in justice and mercy on behalf of his people, but where that reign has yet to be fully recognized and, and to even fully grasp the hearts of his own people. We live in that meantime. One author puts it this way, the Psalms tell your story. People in the Psalms get angry grow afraid, cry out in confusion, survive opposition, 
hope for better days. Hurt one another. Help one another. Run from God. Trust in God. Make foolish choices. Ask for forgiveness. And grow wiser and stronger. They are people just like you and me. End quote. And so the Psalms gives poetic expression to the full range of human emotion and experience in this meantime. From the pit where life is shrouded in darkness and despair with no sign of God's presence. Think of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, how long, how long, O Lord? Four times. So life from the pit all the way to what we just heard this morning in Psalm 84, to the very presence of God, where we are so overwhelmed with joy, we can't help but cry out in praise and adoration. The whole range of life. They give expression to our troubled and our joyful hearts. And at the same time, as God's word, they give instruction to us on how to respond as God's people during this meantime. So with honesty, before our fear and our trouble, with patience and hope and trust and joy in the midst of the trouble, and with great praise and adoration for the God whose steadfast love and faithfulness truly do endure to all generations and have been made known to us supremely in the person and work of Christ. The Psalms are for us, here and now, to help us make sense of this thing we call the Christian life, lived out in a fallen world. So our focus for this summer is going to be selections from what has been called Book One of the Psalms. Most scholars recognize the Psalms to be divided up into five collections or books. In chapters 1 through 41 of that first book, that's where we're going to be drawing our selections from this summer as we look at the psalm. So if you still have your Bibles handy, go ahead and find your way to Psalm chapter 1. That's where we're going to be starting this morning, the opening chapter. Psalm 1, the way of the word and the blessing of God. So please follow along as I read one more time for us. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The fundamental question that this psalm asks is, is this. Where shall we find true and lasting blessing in this world? How can we attain and enjoy a full and rewarding life? That's the question that this psalm is after. And in addressing it, it sets before us a portrait of two people 
on two different paths. Two different paths. The way of the world and the way of the word. Verses 1 and 2. Two different answers to this question of where shall we find full and lasting blessing. And those two different paths have a very different character and shape. And that's illustrated in verses 3 and 4 with two pictures uh, that we'll look at. And at the end of each of those paths is a different destination, a different prospect, a different set of consequences described in verses 5 and 6. So how do we navigate through this fallen world so as to experience and enjoy the blessing of God in a full and rewarding life? Now, it, it's interesting uh, that the book of Psalms opens, and really the whole book of Psalms here, opens with a focus on blessing. Blessed is the man or the woman, the person, that's the sense here. It opens with a focus on blessing, which is very much like what we hear when read in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, where Jesus is describing the kind of life characteristic of life in the kingdom, that kind of full and rewarding life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, happy, joyful, meaningfully rewarded are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. So this psalm, and really the whole book of psalms, opens with a kind of beatitude, a focus on blessing, a description of a blessed and rewarding life. Now, as we read ahead in the psalms, we have to admit that that opening line seems a bit out of place, if not naively optimistic. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 4. Answer me when I call. How long will my honor be turned into shame? Psalm 6. Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Not exactly the portrait of you know, rest and peace and all is well and abundant provision, all the things that we tend to associate with this idea of blessing. That doesn't seem to line up. Enemies, shame, the need to be rescued. Why start the book with this kind of focus when that's the reality on the other side? How can the psalm speak of blessing in the midst of such decay? Part of what this book is doing, by starting with Psalm 1 and a focus on blessing, is orienting us toward the rest of the book and toward our lives by stating up front that a life of blessing, of joyful satisfaction in God, is not only possible, but desirable and appropriate, even in a fallen world. It is possible to live a blessed and rewarding life, even now, while we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. Not your best life now. No, the best is yet to come. We need all of the promises fulfilled to have what's best. But a blessed life now, yes. Yes, it is appropriate. It is desirable. It is what God wants. The question is, who is shaping our definition of blessing and the way forward in it? That's the question. Is it the word or is it the world? If we look again at verse 1, the psalmist is very clear about how we should answer that question. Who shapes our definition of blessing 
and the way forward in it. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. Here's the point. A full and rewarding life, this side of eternity, is one shaped by the transforming word of God. A full and rewarding life, this side of eternity, during this meantime, is one that is shaped by the transforming word of God. A psalmist ascribes blessing to the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on that law day and night, all of the time. Now, what does he mean by law of the Lord, though? Well, that word law gets used in several different ways in the Bible. We hear the word law today and we think of law and order, something like that. Or if I can try my hand at this, it's law and order. Is that how we're supposed to say it out here? Yeah, law and order? Okay, just trying to contextualize here. So we, think, we hear the word law and we think of the legal system. In Scripture, the word law is often shorthand for God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. So God's covenant relationship with Israel, which of course includes instructions about how God's redeemed people are to live, and also stipulations for receiving the promises and the blessings. So law as covenant, that's one of the ways it's used. At the same time, that word is also used to refer more generally to the fuller revelation of God and his ways, as the prophets add their voice to the law, as God continues to progressively reveal himself to his people. And I think, so in other words, you have law as covenant, that's one common use. There's also law as scripture, really. Law as God's covenant revelation in full. I think it's that latter sense is what's behind what the, psalm is, the psalmist is referring to here in chapter 1, this more general picture of God's law and instruction. So blessed is the man who delights in the full counsel of God's revealed word. Um, and for us, who stand on this side of the cross, where Christ fulfilled God's covenant with Israel through his life, death, and resurrection, and where God continued to reveal himself through the New Testament, I think it's very appropriate for us to apply what the psalmist says here of the law to the entire Bible. So, blessed is the man who delights in the whole counsel of God's revealed will, Old and New Testaments, and meditates on that. So, what this psalm holds before us then is the way of the word, a life shaped by all of Scripture. Scripture, which gives us God's definition of blessing, and the way forward in it. But how does this work? So is this psalm telling us to, to just add one more activity to your already busy schedules? And if you do that, then your schedules will feel better. Is that what it's after? You know, just squeeze it in between the homework or between the business calls. Uh, does this mean that I have to spend so many minutes in the Bible each day, and if I just do that, my life's going to be better? Like taking a pill. Because I know people who've tried that, and it doesn't work. You know, they, still, they still feel the pressure of this fallen world, and a couple of verses a day doesn't exactly keep the sin and sorrow away. It just doesn't work that way. So what, what is he asking us to do? What does it mean to delight in 
the law of the Lord and God's word and meditate on it and be blessed. The Bible is not a magic pill. It's not. The Bible is not just more information. Some of us read it that way. Some of us maybe listen to sermons that way. And so if I haven't learned anything new, then I've wasted my time. The Bible's not just more information. It's not just more rules to keep, more examples to follow, more principles to apply, more history lessons to learn. And it piles up and weighs you down. It's not what it is. Certainly, the Bible contains these things. But more than anything, it is a life-giving story. It is a life-giving story. It's the story of God revealing himself to us by the Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the story. It's the story in which we find out who we really are, what we were really made for, who God is and what he has done and is doing for us through the cross and the resurrection to reclaim us for what we were really made for. So as we avail ourselves to God's word, as we read it and think about it and mull it over again and again, that's what he means here by meditate on it. It's not talking about assuming the lotus at rest position or something like that. He's talking about reading, reflecting, wrestling with it, chewing on it, digesting it, taking it in. As we do that, as we open up God's word in the quiet of the morning, or as we listen to it in the chaos of rush hour, or come together in our home fellowships, or Sunday morning worship, or family devotions, whatever shape it is that we take the Bible into our lives, as we do that, we are not there to accomplish a task. We're there to meet God. Delighting in God's word is about delighting in God himself. That's the point. Meeting with him. Meditating on him, who he is, what he's done. Seeing ourselves in this whole world through his lenses. Having our eyes opened. It's about seeing that God himself is our reward in this meantime. Delighting in God's word means delighting in and depending daily upon the central message of that word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where God dealt with our sin once and for all on the cross and defeated death and evil in the resurrection, giving us new life. Delighting in God's word is about delighting in God. That's the point. He is our reward, and he has made himself known in the scriptures. And so, therefore, God wants all of his people to be a people of the book, to know and love his Bible. That's part of what it means to be a follower of God, not out of mere duty, out of delight out of delight in meeting and knowing him. And again, this takes all kinds of shape. I'm less interested in how you take the Bible in than I am in that we're doing it and that we're meeting God. And yes, it's hard. My flesh wars against the need to take the time and sit down before God and avail myself to him through his word. I just want to dive into the day with my own strength, get things done, as though I don't really need him 
or what he has to say. That's my flesh, and it wars. But we need God, and so therefore we need God's word. My former pastor at College Church, Kent Hughes, once said, you can never have a Christian mind without reading the scriptures regularly because you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. We need to read and wrestle and meditate on God's word. And again, not just to be informed, but to be transformed, to be renewed in his image. As we reflect on and wrestle with the truth of God's word and the realities of our lives in light of the cross and resurrection. And by the way, if that is something that sounds new to you or you've heard about and you're just not quite sure what it even looks like to do that or you need some help, I would love to sit down and open God's word together and help you find your way around it. I would love to do that. The elders would love to do that. I've not asked them, but they're good guys, and I know they would. <laughs> That's what shepherds do. We would love to help you learn how to spend meaningful time seeking God in his word. So please, grab me, drop an email, whatever. Um, please. So God calls us to delight in his word and to take our counsel from the whole counsel of God. But that's not the only voice at work in this psalm, is it? That voice is set over against another voice, that of the world. So blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of mockers. Uh, there is another voice. And the world is not quiet about its opinion of what blessing is and how you should seek it. If you just consider for a moment the checkout line at Stop and Shop, all of the different messages on display in the magazines and the candy and the trinkets and everything, all of them telling you what a truly meaningful life looks like and how you should seek it. So happiness is being thin. That's what the magazine says, all these diet tips and so on. If I do that, I've got life. Happiness is love and sex, according to these magazines. It's knowing the future. All these little horoscopes lined up for you right there. That's happiness. It's gossip, living vicariously through the exploits of some celebrity, or maybe just feeling better about myself because my life isn't half as messed up as that. You know, that's, that's happiness. It's money. It's power, it's knowledge. Think of all of the information at your fingertips, and if you just know all of that. It's career, it's medication. There's happiness. It's beauty, 101 beauty tips. It's instant gratification, Snickers satisfies. <laughs> and if you're in the checkout line at Home Depot, it's a new kitchen with a granite countertop. <laughs> That's all of these messages surrounding us. And most of these things are not intrinsically bad. But neither are they the substance of a meaningful and rewarding life. 
In essence, that checkout line represents a pantheon of contemporary gods, all telling you how to live, all promising to make you happy, and all asking for your worship. And if you want the life and love and blessing that they offer, then it's going to cost you. You're going to have to make a sacrifice on their altar. So, if you worship beauty, that's your God, then you're going to have to bring to that altar your money, your health sometimes, your emotional well-being. If you worship career, success, that's your God, then you take your wife or your, your husband and your children and you bring them to the altar and you appease that pagan God to get the life it offers. You make your sacrifice. And some of these gods are in conflict with one another, both trying to steal allegiance from the other. And so the God of instant gratification says, yeah, buy that jumbo pack of M&Ms and binge because it's going to make you feel better. But then the God of beauty makes you vomit it out 20 minutes later. They're at war in your soul. That's the counsel of the wicked. That's the seat of mockers. That's the way of sinners. And when the world looks at us, trying to live our lives and seek God's blessing according to this book, it laughs. It scoffs. How stupid is it to let some ancient, outdated book tell you how to live? We outgrew that a long time ago, those superstitions. How oppressive to be given so many rules to keep. You need to be how boring to read all those stories. How foolish and bigoted to define your ideas of right and wrong from a record of what a bunch of people once upon a time used to believe. Or to quote noted atheist Richard Dawkins, how vicious, sadomasochistic, repellent, and barking mad is the belief that God killed his son to atone for your sins. The world scoffs and makes fun of this whole thing we're talking about. The idea that blessing is found by believing and following what God has said in the scriptures. And though we wouldn't be so crass, I hope, or, or we might not be so overt in our objection to scripture, the temptation is very, very real to let the world come in and adjust the way we seek God. You know, maybe it's the tendency to downplay sin. I'm not really that sinful. I'm not really that bad. Because I kind of like doing that. Or because I'm too ashamed to even admit that I've done it. Or because I've got a reputation that I have to protect and blessing is contingent on it. That definition of blessing does not come from a gospel-centered message of God. It's coming from some other voice. Maybe it's the the subtle drive of materialism that causes us to speed uncomfortably fast those passages of Scripture that call out our gods of money and success and comfort. Maybe it's the siren call of success that woos even church leaders to listen more carefully to the latest market trends and business ideas than we do to the scriptures when it comes to shepherding the flock. Because that's how we're going to be successful. You know, 
It's subtle. It's subtle. But left unchecked, it threatens to divert us off of the way of the word and therefore away from God. And so the question is, do we really believe that this book is the source of a full and rewarding life even in this fallen world? Is it really sufficient to enjoy a life of blessing in the meantime? Or do we need to one-up it with something else? Consider the two pictures that this psalm gives us. The first picture in verse 3 is a life shaped by God's word. So verse 3. He is, a, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. That's the picture of the way of the word. I mean, look at, at that picture and the portrait of God's intentional care for us. It's not just that this tree sprung up somewhere. It's, it's as if it's a picture of the wilderness this meantime, and in the middle of it is the stream of God's life-giving word, and there God has taken us and has planted us right next to that stream, right next to the source of life, so that we are enabled to actually bear fruit in obedience for God. We're enabled to persevere through the trials and accomplish what God has set before us to do, even in the midst of the trials. Now, the trials are real. Don't hear me for a moment saying that the trials aren't real. When your boss comes in and tells you that your division's being cut, it's real. When you lose a loved one, that's real. That's real. When you're gripped by sin or trapped in depression or when you are slandered by someone you had trusted, that's real. That's real. But a blessed and rewarding life is not contingent on any of these things, but on whether or not we have God as our reward. He is our treasure. He is our hope. Not what he gives us, but him. It's interesting to look at Jeremiah 17. It's a very similar to Psalm 1, but instead of ascribing blessing to the one who delights in the law of the Lord, it ascribes a blessed life to the one who delights in and clings to God himself. So, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. God himself is our treasure. He is our reward. That's what the word points us to. Now, the fact that this fallen world is a meantime means that there is an end. The wilderness does not last forever, and it is a joyful end of you know, we, we must look forward to the full riches of God's covenant blessing for all eternity in his presence in the new heavens and new earth. That is a great and marvelous hope, and that hope gets us through the night. But even in the meantime, we can follow God's word 
and delight in God because we have him as our reward, and that is a blessed life. So what about the alternative? What about the alternative? What if I want to follow the way of the world? Verse 4 gives us another picture. A blessed life, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. I don't know if you know what chaff is. It's an agricultural picture. So when, when you're harvesting grain, not everything that you harvest is worth keeping. You just want the kernel, and there's all this other stuff around it. And so what they used to do is throw it on the floor, and they'd either beat it with sticks or they'd drive animals over top of it to loosen that stuff in order to get to the kernel. Then they'd take a big fork, and they'd throw it up in the air so that the wind would catch that chaff and just blow it away, and all you had left was what you wanted, the kernel. The chaff. It's useless. Or maybe you think of your little more contemporary picture, your coffee grinder. You know, when you grind it, there's all that light flaky stuff that clings to the top of the lid. That's chaff. That's chaff. What do you do with it? It's useless. That's the life according to the world. That's the picture. That's the picture. It is fleeting and fruitless. It cannot give you what it promises, and what it gives you cannot last. Fleeting and fruitless. And there are a lot of reasons for this. But the psalmist just gives us one, verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The sober reality of following the way of the world is not merely that it leaves you empty, but that it leads you into the condemnation of God. God made this world and created us for his purposes. He rules us as the true king. Despite our sin, he sent his son to rescue us, to cleanse us, to reclaim us for his purposes. And there is a consequence for refusing him, for turning a deaf ear to his word and following the way of the wicked. And we'll take a little bit closer look at that in Psalm 2 next week. But the conclusion here is not only that the world can't fill you, it will destroy you. Because it puts you at odds with the holy king of the universe, who alone is worthy of glory, and who acknowledges and looks over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. We're not playing games here. Whether or not we follow the way of the world or the way of the word is not a game. It's life and death. It's serious. But hear me. This judgment, this punishment and condemnation that the psalm is talking about is the very condemnation that Christ came to take on himself. That punishment for turning a deaf ear to God's word and, and following the way of the wicked, that whole punishment is the very thing that Christ bore on the cross in our place. That's the testimony of God's life-giving word. 
That is a word worth shaping your life around. That is a word worth staking everything on. The way of the word is the way of the gospel, of knowing and delighting in and depending upon God as he has made himself known to us in his transforming word, which brings us to the foot of the cross. May it be so among us. Amen. Let's pray. God, oh, how we want this. Oh, how we long to delight in your word and to depend on your word. God, grant it to be so. Give us the strength, the discipline, the patience to avail ourselves to your word and change our lives through it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.